This episode is very meta. It is about learning how to learn. So for the pre-meds, med students, and residents, this is critical. It's critical because there's so much information, and the more efficient you are about your time and learning, the better you'll be at it. For those of us out and about in the world that need to recertify, this is a reminder that we never knew the best ways to study. So we should learn those techniques now. Chase DeMarco teaches us ideas like visual mnemonics, memory palaces, mind mapping, gamification, among others. Chase is an MS, MBA, and MD-PhD candidate. He is the founder and educator at Free Med Ed, which he began in 2014 to consolidate free educational resources for his classmates. He made this available to everybody. He is the host of the Medical Nemonist podcast, and he teaches us how to pronounce that correctly, creator of several medical educational platforms, and is the CEO of Find a Rotation Clinical Rotation Service. He's explored many facets of medical education, the psychology of learning, and accelerated learning techniques. As an average student, it, isn't, it wasn't until after he had attained graduate education that he learned to implement accelerated learning and educational efficiency. He has a passion to make studying easier for all students and bring great educational resources to the masses. You're going to love this. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Dr. Chase DeMarco, thanks so much for being on the podcast. No, thanks for having me on, Brad. So I, I love your podcast. I love how it's executed, but most of all, I love the concept behind it because it's so in line with, with mine, right? Like stuff we should have learned already, but yours is really like stuff we should have learned in middle school or high school or elementary school. It's learning how to learn, which is so important for pre-meds, right? Because there's so many gut courses you have to take. And then in medical school, right? The saying is getting a drink of water from a fire hose. So if you're going to do that, mm. and there's a technique for drinking most efficiently, then uh, we should probably know what that is. Yet, yet we never learn it. Yeah, we're all dribbling out of the sides of our mouth, and it's just it's messy. It's, it's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess. So, so that's what we're going to talk about today: is is how to learn efficiently according to the science. So first, I think I really want to get this out of the way. How do you pronounce? That the show the mnemonic yeah like mnemonic <laughs> I know it's a familiar word to me but someone who makes mnemonics there's a word and I can spell it but I don't know how to say it yeah it, mnemonics so nemonist uh, is how I pronounce it it's I don't think it's made it into the dictionary quite yet but basically person who studies and creates mnemonics and teaches even so the medical nemonist is based on that terminology. It's when I started finding out about these techniques and some of the instructors I was coming across, they were using the terminology. And I think there's a book to uh, Mind of a Nemonist, and it <laughs> goes into that type of... Actually, it's a really fascinating book, but we'll save that for later. So I'm like, well, you know, that we use mnemonics a lot in school, but sometimes they're not very good. And that's only a small portion of learning and memory. And what if we took that based with 
more evidence-based techniques because we're in medicine. We need evidence-based something or we're going to be skeptical. So I took the concept of evidence-based study practice and medical mnemonics, advanced mnemonic techniques, not just like acronyms and basic stuff, and started putting these two concepts together in the frame of learning, especially for healthcare learners. And it's really just taken off from there. So at what point in your learning career did you start to, to, to learn about learning? <laughs> um, I'll, I'll divide it up into two different parts. So before med school, I was actually finishing up my master's in educational psychology. So I always had this interest in learning. And for a long time, I planned on being an online educator, uh, possibly in psychology or something like that. But it's really hard to get those jobs. People just never Not right now. Those jobs. Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> you missed a gold mine there. Yeah, everyone's doing it now. But that was the problem was I was going to teach while I was going through med school and help to pay my tuition costs. And that just never came to fruition. And even when I finished my master's program in my first semester in med school, there was no job placement for someone with a master's. They had to go into their PhD. So I started working on my PhD through medical school, but I had learned the theory of a lot of evidence-based practices through my master's degree, but I never really put it to practice. I didn't need to for most of undergrad, and I still did very well. And wait, wait, wait. even you were getting a PhD separate and distinct. It's not like you're you're one of the the mud fuds, right? Where you were getting your MD PhD kind of at the same time. And there's a preset program for you. You were getting a PhD while you were in medical school? Yes. Uh, I was kind of doing No them wonder you need some study techniques. Separate. Holy cow. And we thought we were getting a drink of water from a fire hose. <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, it, was, uh, it was a frustrating time, we'll say. But then the second one would be probably the end of my third year, beginning fourth year is when I started learning more about mnemonics and started revisiting materials that I had learned in my master's program that I knew through theory, but I didn't really know how to put into practice. So when I started combining these two topics was really towards the beginning of fourth year. And so it was already too late for most of my medical education. And it just turned out that uh, I was also struggling a lot with board exams at the time. So I'm like, I need to take some time off to reevaluate how I'm learning and to find out what mistakes I'm making and correct them. And then try to see how I can see how I can educate others to not make those mistakes. A lot of my classmates were struggling just as well. And they were probably running into the, a lot of the same obstacles I was. But yeah, so I didn't get a lot of the benefit during med school, but that led to the creation of the podcast. And then later on, book that was kind of based loosely on the podcast and other materials to help students get over these hurdles and learn more effectively. So what was the biggest study mistake that you found you were making? Either, either, either the first or the biggest? Um, the first mistake that you corrected when you started learning about learning or the most significant one? Oh boy. I would say probably one of the same, really. It goes into the difference in active and passive learning and not really understanding that difference very well before. So for example, in undergrad, I could do passive learning. I could listen to the instructor, jot down some notes, maybe skim through the textbook, take the tests, and I'm good. I'm done. Usually, you don't come back to that material again. You don't have a lot of comprehensive material in most undergrad programs. But that did not work very well in med school. I got through all my classes fine, and I was usually you know, average, maybe slightly above average in grade-wise. But when I hit the board exams, I realized the biggest mistake I had been making for the previous two-ish years was passive learning. I was learning just enough to get through the class, get through the material at the time, but I wasn't really utilizing the more active space repetition and those types of keywords you hear all the time 
uh, efficiently enough so that I could recall everything together as a whole when I needed to. So it really came down to just these passive learning techniques and not studying for the long term because I'd never done so before. I never learned how to. It was never really brought up in class. Like I just didn't know what I was doing wrong until I started studying more about it. Can you flesh that out a little more, the difference between active learning and passive learning? Passive learning is really something that you can... How to, how to describe it. You can do something else while you're doing it, for instance. You can do it without a lot of focus, without a lot of attention needed. So if you're listening to a lecture, lecture-based learning, if you are listening to a podcast, if you're watching a pre-recorded video, uh, those are types of passive learning because you're not actively involved in your education most of the time. But even things such as reading your textbooks or your own notes, if you are rereading them for the second, third plus time, that is also passive learning because you're not implementing something different. You're not making your actions you know, active towards your learning habits to really make a difference there. So for instance, uh, one of the mistakes that most students make is rereading the chapter or rereading their notes or over-highlighting because they just highlight too much. <laughs> and then <laughs> burn a hole in the page. No, I was, exactly. I was definitely uh, one of those people not a reread the chapter, but I was big into flashcards. I would make my own flashcards. And then while I was doing laundry, while I was doing the dishes, while I was at the gym, sometimes I would have flashcards with me and I would just go over these flashcards and you're right, passive. Like once they're made, I think the one distinction would be the process of making them. So identifying something important and then writing that down and turning it into a flashcard, right? That would be active. Whereas passive is just then like reviewing them again. Well, whenever you're making content, you're correct. That's active. So if you're making your flashcards, when you're first writing your notes, when you're doing something active, flashcards kind of border on active learning as well because it adds in the extra level of learning of rehearsal, of recall information. So what I noticed when I was making my flashcards initially is sometimes, for instance, and this is a completely incorrect way to use flashcards, is I would copy and paste like the end of chapter quizzes or something like that from a textbook, a PDF textbook that I had for class. And then I would implement that into my flashcards thinking, okay, if I get the question wrong, it'll come back up later on and I can take it again. Well, that's not really active in that form because multiple choice questions, they're, they're sort of borderline, but really flashcards, when written properly, when structured properly, force you to recall the information. And that's active learning because you're actively searching your own memory. You're not being primed by something necessarily in the question or by you know, a certain demographic or some other information. You're not being primed by reading a chapter and looking at the bolded letters, bolded words and subheadings. You're not being primed by looking at your own notes for the 50th time. You really have to actively recall the information. You have to be able to state it with your eyes closed, teach it to somebody, tell your parents, tell your coworkers, tell your dog, tell your wall, <laughs> state it out loud. And that's basically rehearsal or recall practice. And that's active learning. That's one step. Okay. So learning. then I think passive. Now I'm remembering all those nights in the library where I would read a page and then get to the end of the page and realize I remember nothing of what I just read. In fact, it occurred to me that I was thinking of something else as I was reading, if somehow that's possible. Yeah, exactly. And that's something we do all the time. We're like, oh, oh I was not focused. God, that so was just so painful. That's where you read it again. Or, or even I did understand it the first time. Maybe I read the chapter last week and I thought I understood it fine, but I'm going to go reread the chapter again now. Well, you're not likely to take too much away from it the second time that you didn't take away from it the first time. The, the level of increase in your knowledge there is going to be so minimal. It's 
not statistically significant from most studies I've seen. Wow. So you can change that though. You can add different techniques and, and tactics into your more passive style. So if you're reading a chapter, for instance, after every, let's say not chapter, because that'd be kind of big, but maybe after every third paragraph, now close your eyes and tell yourself or turn to someone next to you and tell them what you read in as much detail as you can. So that way you're recalling the information. You're seeing if you actually got it the first time. You're seeing if you understood it. You're seeing if you can synthesize it in a way that makes sense to your brain and in a way that now you can explain it to someone else. And there are a lot of different techniques you can use. You don't need to tell it to someone else. You can make a flashcard. You can make a mnemonic. You can do a bunch of different active learning styles to really make sure that you understood the material. But also it acts as a first repetition in the space repetition that we'll probably get into more later on. And the space repetition is huge in long-term memory. I can tell that I will be applying all of these things, probably more so to my kids who are going to hate me for it. Man, every time they have a test that they need to study for, I'm going to be, I'm going to be bringing this up because it just, as in many things in life, We've been getting it wrong, and yet the right way to do it just makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense that you can't zone out while you're doing it. You can't, you're, you're actively creating like newer, stronger synapses, right? You're, re you're reinforcing it in different ways with different connections. So it just, it just makes sense. It makes sense. But for the, for the skeptics out there who think, I do everything right, or I don't, might not do everything right, but I've gone this far doing what I do, right? How do we turn them into converts? What is something small and easy they can do? If there's someone who's used to just, you know, they got to take their, I just think of myself, right? I, you're supposed to take our uh, board exams every 10 years. So that's going to be approaching. Uh, it's actually not for other reasons, not relevant to the show, but if I do, Rather than just reading first aid for the boards, again, right? What's something small that I can integrate into my study habits? All right, well, now we're talking about two different people because <laughs> the person that already knows everything, you're not going to tell them anything they don't already know, so they're not going to listen to you. And until they hit a wall on their own, they're probably not going to change their habits. People like to get in their comfort zones, and that's kind of the same reason that pre-med study the same way when they first get into med school. It worked for them then. So until they hit that wall, until they find out it's not working and that they need to change something up, they're probably not going to. But let's say they've gotten past that pre-contemplation stage. They're, they're now contemplating the change. There are some simple things that anyone can do, depending on what they're trying to learn, of course, and to the degree that they need to know it, the depth of it, and how long they need to know it. But Flashcards is a great way to get through a lot of the medical school material. There's just so much of it. You need to do a lot of repetitions. Software helps you do that. There's a lot of free software out there that does space repetition for you, so you don't need to draw out or write out thousands of flashcards. But there's another more fun way to do that, I think, anyway. And it's a little more challenging at first because you kind of have to develop this skill, sort of like learning a new language in a way, and that's using visual mnemonics. And... I don't know how many people in your audience are aware of these resources, but you can go search them real quick. Something like Sketchy Medicine or Picmonic, where they use these weird visual graphics to associate to a medical term or a medical process or association there. And that helps 
your memory in multiple different ways. And then you can store these visual mnemonics in a storage location, like a memory palace later on. And we'll get into some more details there. But Yeah, whoa, <laughs> whoa, memory palace. Okay, yes. <laughs> so we are definitely going to talk about that. Got it. Okay, but we'll, yes, save that for later. <laughs> yeah, but I would say if you want to start learning that technique in particular, it's a bit nuanced. And I would definitely recommend maybe a, a free course like Anthony Mativier has a, a free course um, I've interviewed him a couple of times on my shows. I have a lot of very interesting and experienced uh, mnemonics educators and trainers on my show too. So there's a couple of great free episodes there that people can check out more information because we won't have enough time to get into all the specifics here. But we're basically just taking any idea, any concept, every any term. People use it for language learning all the time and converting it into some sort of visual that is personal to us, that is much easier to remember than the material would be in and of itself. And that's just kind of fun. You can do this while you're meditating and you think of something, but you don't want to get up and you know scribble it down and mess up your meditation. Or if you're listening to a podcast in the car and there's some interesting information, but you're afraid you might forget it by the time you get out of the car, then you could implement one of these memory techniques and remember it at least until you get to write it down or you know store it for later so you don't need to write it down. Can you elaborate on that? So let's say someone's learning what a memory palace is, and then they want to commit that to memory with this visualization technique. How do we, how do we actually execute that? Sure. So we'll get to memory palace in a second then. Let me see if I can better explain the visual mnemonic. So here's a quick scene that, of course, is going to be kind of difficult to explain on audio, and it's probably going to make no sense to most people listening, but let me try to explain at the end. So I'm picturing a girl in this scene in my head that is looking at a poster, and it's a poster of her pet animal. She then hops on a tricycle, strolls out of the room on the tricycle. Something flies in her eye. She loses control of the tricycle, falls off it. She falls right onto her chest, and uh, something sharp in her chest, and she looks down and notices that right on her chest, she fell on a pile of seashells. All right, so you're probably listening to this thinking, what the <laughs> is he talking yeah, about? Yeah, it sounds like a... A dream or a nightmare, yeah, depending on your yeah, perspective. Definitely. Could be either one. So this is a, a quick mnemonic that I made up one day for remembering post-herpetic neuralgia treatments and side effects of treatments because there's a lot of different neurodiseases with similar-ish treatments, but some minor differences. I always get them mixed up in my head. It, it's not something I've seen like clinically, so I can't put that experiential learning point to it. If you do have that, great. You don't need to use this technique for that. But since I didn't have that, I said, let's make a mnemonic for it. So the girl, the character in the scene, is looking at a poster of her pet. So post-herpetic neuralgia to remind me that it's that type of neuralgia and not like a diabetic neuropathy or some other neuro issue, right? And then she opts on a tricycle for tricyclic antidepressants, which is the uh, first line, one of the main treatments for post-herpetic neuralgia. And then as she's coming out of the room on her tricycle, something hits her in the eye. She falls, hits her chest on the seashells, right? So there's three different things going on there. First, thing hitting her in the eye is just to remind me that glaucoma is one of the contraindications for using tricyclics in this disease. And the other is chest pain. So usually we're thinking something cardiac in that aspect. And the seashells just kind of reminded me of seizures. It sort of rhymed almost. It was close enough that it made sense to me when I made it. So now I can remember this really weird scene quickly and get all those factoids down. And you want it to be weird. You want it to be kind of nonsensical because if it's sensical, if it's every day, it's boring and you're not going to remember it. So the weirder it is, the more unusual it is, the more it's going to stick out in your memory later on when you're trying to recall it. 
And that makes sense evolutionarily, right? Like we're designed to remember stories, to remember situations, and to remember things that are outlandish because we don't have to remember the mundane. The mundane happens all the time and there's no reason to commit it to, exactly. to memory. So the fact that it's so outlandish exactly. makes, makes sense. Wow. Okay. Now I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember that. That's amazing. That's amazing. Although I do have to put the disclaimer because I wasn't going to put this disclaimer on the episode that this is not medical advice, right? Yeah, nothing correct. that we say both with both doctors, but nothing. This is this is purely for studying's sake, and anything that you hear related to medicine is purely coincidental. That sound of us in your ears is not a doctor-patient relationship. And, so, and like most politics podcasts these days, this information will probably change by the time you hear this. <laughs> Um, yes. Uh, okay. Um, all right. So, so, um, so visual mnemonics, I, I love it. And it just seems like it could be fun, right? It could be fun to come up with these things. Like if you're, if you're, if you're someone who doesn't like me, who's just used to sit there and just stare at lists and oh my goodness. But, but now like you can create these cool stories and it's it's just a much more enjoyable experience, I would think, than than just oh, just the monotony of memorization. Oh yeah, and it's just it's a fun creative process. And the one obstacle people tend to run into is they try to convert everything into a mnemonic. And when you're doing that, then you're trying to force it. And if you try to force something, the creative process just doesn't want to work. So that that's probably like a number one rule not to do. But if you can do this when you're having fun, especially when you're first starting off, practice with material that doesn't matter, something you listen to on the radio, something you read in a magazine, and then you can kind of develop the skill. And as you develop kind of this visual dictionary, you can start reusing certain terms and ideas later on. So that's why I say it's kind of like learning a language. You develop a few words at a time, then you start developing sentences, and then you, know, you can go on to poetry or whatever. <laughs> it's a skill. It's yeah. a skill. You get better with practice, and that's that's and such a powerful tool. So you had mentioned the memory palace. So is this something that we can find? And now that I'm saying it, it just sounds like such a bad joke, but is this something <laughs> that I can find while searching Zillow? <laughs> uh, yes, definitely. Purchase well, with a jumbo kinda. loan. Exactly. Will my <laughs> physician mortgage, will a physician loan work towards purchasing a memory palace? Okay, that's enough. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> uh, all right. So a memory palace is also known as the method of loci or loci, however you pronounce it. And it basically just means location-based memory. And this is any location that you can visualize if you close your eyes is how I like to describe it. So most people start off with their own homes because it's the place they're most familiar with. They're there every day. They can close their eyes and imagine walking through and they can picture where everything is. They know where every piece of furniture is, where every room is, where the light fixtures are, where the ceiling fixtures are, the windows, the doors. And by doing this, by knowing where all of these locations are within this palace, the larger location being the palace, then you can start placing these visual mnemonics that you've created throughout your palace. So to break it up, like here's some terminology you might want to know. Uh, and this is not by any means something that everyone uses, but it's something that Anthony Mativia uses. So I like to use it because it makes sense to me. If the larger structure, such as your house or a library or the hospital you work at or your school, wherever you've been to, if you go to eat at a restaurant frequently, any place that you can close your eyes and visualize in pretty good detail, that's going to be your palace. And then section off this palace into rooms or you know different sections 
that makes sense for that structure, whatever that structure is. Those are going to be your macro stations, right? And then within each macro station, so let's use a bedroom, for example, there's going to be micro stations. And that's all of your furniture, your light fixtures, ceiling fixtures, all of that stuff. Those are your micro stations within the macro station within the memory palace. Now, (laughs) once you have that down, you can kind of structure how you want to attack a topic. So if you're learning something for a class or for an upcoming exam, the material is generally going to be divided anyway, right? It's chunked. It's chunked into disciplines or it's chunked into whatever it is for that particular material. So you can use those chunks to organize what is going to go where. So this chunk of information is going to go into my macro station of my bedroom. And this chunk of information is going to go into my kitchen. And this chunk is going to go in the bathroom and et cetera, et cetera. And if you need more spaces, you just add another memory palace. You add your friend's house, your grandparents' house, your parents' house, your school, work, any place you've been to. And you can just keep adding these palaces, make a list of them, add material throughout. And now you have a place to store these visual mnemonics. Because the mnemonics on their own, they're fun, they're great. If you're primed with the information, you'll probably remember it. But otherwise, it's kind of abstract. It's hard to come across something that's going to trigger that visual memory. But if you store it in something that's familiar to you already, then you're going to be able to say, oh, I remember I put that on the nightstand and that scene is occurring on the bed. And this is occurring over on the light switch. Something's hanging off of the light switch. So you're adding in this kind of arbitrary, weird, visual, creative process to something that's very personal to you. And whenever you make personalized uh, associations to your memory techniques, they're going to be much stronger. But I can't even remember where I put my keys, right? <laughs> I did the same thing. Yeah. Like, totally I don't know where I put my phone. I don't know where I put my keys. And, and you're, you're expecting me to remember like the steps of, well, let's keep going back to it. Krebs cycle. Oh, um, <laughs> everyone's favorite cycle to hate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that is under the bed. Right. If I can't keep how how is it that these connections end up being stronger than the ones for the things that I'm actually going to need right now? Well, it depends on what you mean. So if you're talking about right now, is it something you already know? Is it something that you already implement on a day to day basis? Because if so, that's that's probably different. That's experiential. You're already doing it. You don't need a memory palace for that. No, what I what I mean is like my experience is such that I put my stuff down and can't remember where I keep it in the house. But you're saying that these memory techniques are about where things are in my house. So yeah, I can I can close my eyes and I can visualize like all the furniture because that's all fixed. But like now I'm adding to the complexity to that. How do is know, how do how do I how does that help my memory? It, when well, my experience well, tells me that I don't necessarily remember. These things, you know? <laughs> let's look at it this way. Do you know where your Cherry is right now in, let's say, the living room. Yeah. Why do you think you know where that is? Because that's just where, because that's where it always is. Okay. And you probably put it there intentionally, right? You didn't put it in another place that would have gotten in the walkway or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that intentionality when you're creating the memory palaces is also a big, you know, a lot of times we set down uh, our phone and the keys and we're not paying attention. So yes. that awareness, that okay. focus when you're creating the memory is what is also going to help to solidify that as opposed to something that, again, is happening every day. So it's less memorable. Now we have this weird image that we purposely set in this location. You're going to probably remember it. Yeah. If I say to myself, I'm going to put my keys here today and it's somewhere different, and there's a reason that I'm putting them there, then I'm going to remember that I put them there. But if it's like I just took them out of my pocket and put them in the closest counter 
where I happen to be standing at the time, there's no mm-hmm. intentionality and therefore it hasn't been committed to memory. Exactly. Okay. And okay. we also do space repetition with our memory palaces, with our mnemonics. So you have multiple repetitions of where it is and what it is, and then it also helps to make it stick longer and fight the forgetting curve. Space repetitions. Can you go into that a little bit? Sure. Space repetitions, kind of like how it sounds. It's basically a combination of two of the most well evidence based studied techniques out there, and that's the spacing effect and recall. And we turn this into a combination, which is spaced recall, spaced rehearsal. And what this is, is the spacing effect basically says if you study something multiple times over an extended period of time, so several times within a week or within a month, versus just cramming before the exam, you're going to remember that material to a much greater extent. This has been studied over and over and over again. If I study it on Monday, and then again Thursday, and then maybe next Friday, there's big gaps in between them. But now I have three different spacings of this material. And it's going to stick longer learning bits and pieces of it over this extended period of time than trying to cram all of it at once in one day. And then rehearsal is really covering the same material at a separate point in time. So if I have anatomy, three parts, I study part one, now, part two, later, part three in the distance, that's spacing, right? But if I study part one now, I study part one and part two later, and I study part one and part two and part three at a later time, now we have both spacing and we have rehearsal of the previous information, of the previous repetitions. So you're mixing these together and it forms a very, very strong bond within your memory. Does the spacing, can it be evenly spaced or does it need to be irregularly spaced? Kind of like, like, I think, you know, reinforcing behaviors works that way. If you're inconsistent with like reward, sometimes you get it, sometimes you don't, then, you know, it's more likely to encode a behavior. Whereas, you know, for this, can you do it Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or does it need to be Monday, Tuesday, Friday to change the space? Doesn't, or does it not matter? So it actually seems that the spacing intervals should increase with each time period to get the best effect. So the first one, you might want to be within the first day or a couple of days. I actually have a a podcast on just this episode I call the 11311 method. This is spacing out your rehearsal of the same material within one day, so within 24 hours of the first time you cover it, and then within a day of that first repetition, then within three days, within one week, within one month. So you get more spread out every time, but you're also still covering multiple repetitions of the material. And there seems to be this link up until a certain point anyway, at least up until a couple of months, where spacing it out more and more so that you almost forget it, but not quite, actually strengthens your memory overall when you do recall it. So when you struggle a little bit, don't give up and look at your notes right away. Think about it. Try to process it. Because when you do that, when you spend the extra little time to really go dig deep and see what you know, and if it comes to you, great, you're going to remember it that much stronger next time than if you would have just looked at your notes. Okay, now you know it again, but you're probably not going to remember it as strong on the next repetition. So there are a couple of things that we've discussed so far. I just I want to take a step back to the visual mnemonics, right? Because there's something that I've seen in, in your podcast called mind mapping and and I wonder if those two tie together like does does my sorry does mind mapping tie into memory palace or does mind mapping tie into visual mnemonics or is this all one confluence I would say it's a confluence I've seen it used in every way so a mind map is in simplest terms it's kind of like a, a bubble map or a concept map where you have a main point in the middle and then you have the sub 
subpoints that branch around it in like a 360 degree array, and then subpoints from each of those subpoints that spider out even further. But the difference in this and a normal bubble map or concept map is that you add different colorations to different topics, you organize them, you chunk them by color, you add little drawings, images to each of these like sub topics within a topic, and you're just adding more memory devices that way. You're adding more color, more distinction, more chunking of material, and more visual images to the actual mind map itself. And Tony Buzon is the one that actually created this terminology, and he just passed away pretty recently. So any material from him is a great resource to get his theory on it, and he has like seven rules that you're supposed to follow. I'm not saying you have to follow all seven of those rules, but it does differentiate itself quite a bit from a normal static line drawing of a bubble map. But that being said, you can use the mind map within the memory palace, or you can use the mind map to create the memory palace. For instance, the first time I came across this was one of my interviewees, one of my guests, was using mind maps within his memory palaces. So he would replace pictures of paintings on his walls with a mind map. So then when he's mentally walking through his house or his room or his memory palace, he'd come across the mantle and he sees a mind map that he drew. Now the mind map has this organizational flow to it. It has dozens of different concepts to it. And because he knew the mind map well enough from doing repetitions of it individually, now that is chunked in with all the other information within this macro station. On the other hand, I've interviewed other guests that use mind maps to organize how they're going to structure their memory palace. So the palace will basically be the center concept. And then the branching points from that center concept are going to be each of the micro stations or rooms. And then each of the branches from those subtopics are going to be the different micro station details, all the stuff that's on the furniture or on the you know, ceiling or swinging from the fan. So you can really use it either way. Interesting, interesting. It sounds to me actually a little overwhelming. The the visual mnemonics to me sounded sounded like, you know, oh, we could tell a fun little story, make a little game. But this, you know, the the memory palace and incorporating the mind mapping into the paintings on the wall or using the the memory palace as the center console in the in the mind map sounds pretty advanced. So <laughs> how do we start waiting our toe? It sounds like maybe the memory palace might even be the best place to start. With, with that type of visual learning? I would say that each memory technique, each mnemonic tool is in and of itself usable. But because of the creative aspect of all of them, they can also be intermingled as much or as little as you want. So take any of the topics we've discussed today and start off with just one of them. Start off with creating a visual mnemonic or start off with making a list of potential memory palaces, closing your eyes and walking through them, making sure that you actually know them as well as you think you do. Or go and create a mind map or just create a concept map and add some little doodles and color schemes to it. And all of this is just getting into the start of the practice. And you can go into infinite detail about these because they're creative. It can be as elaborate as your dreams, which (laughs) might make no sense to anyone else, but it makes perfect sense to you, at least at the time that you create it. But you don't need to do that to gain the benefit of these and to start implementing them. Uh, It can go even more complex. I don't even want to get into the mind cities and stuff that some of uh, one guest in particular started talking about for memorizing like millions of items. But <laughs> I think for our audience, the next step will be download your podcast and and listen to, <laughs> listen to that. Because um, I think we're getting a little more into the weeds. And, and yeah. yeah, start with one of these techniques and then and then be able to build from there. That actually that, that ties in really well to 
a podcast I had a little while ago. Uh, the behavioral psychologist BJ Fogg talks about tiny habits, his book, Tiny Habits. And so, you know, you would think popular wisdom is to, to turn your world upside down so that you can, you know, lose those 30 pounds. But as it turns out, that's not what the data says. The data says actually small changes are more likely to last over time. And mm-hmm. so it's the same thing here. Take that tiny step, be successful in it, and that success breeds more success. And then you're going to become so addicted to these things, these, these wonderful learning techniques that you just you don't know how you were ever learning without them. And one of those that we haven't talked about yet, I do want to get to before we wrap up, and that's gamification. So turning learning into a game, right? And I don't yeah, know how yeah. there isn't more of this out there. I try to download <sighs> learning games for my kids so I feel less guilty when they're on their devices. But yeah, it's it, it just doesn't seem to be that much out there. Like, come on, phonics, numbers, math. Like, come on. Oh, I know. There are ways to gamify these things so that kids can learn them. And I just, I just haven't found that much. But we can do it ourselves. So talk, talk to a little about gamification. So I love the concept of gamification. Before I went into being a phlebotomist, before I went into medicine, I was actually planning on going to school for game art and design. I really wanted to create video games. And it wasn't even for the aspect of playing a lot of them. I played a couple of them pretty regularly, but I love the concept of being able to create your own world and get your point across in a very particular way. And I think that's something that we need to start doing more in, well, in everything, as you said, with your kids, but also in medicine. There's a lot of games out there right now. And a lot of them don't actually teach you that well. And that's a thing that I've noticed from a lot of the interviews I've done for gamification. I've had on the one end, the game designers and sort of the the IT professionals. And then on the other hand, I've had the medical educators that are involved in certain gamified products now. And they're trying to do what hasn't been done so much previously. And that is mix the enjoyment and art of games with the actual principled learning curriculum. And before those were always divided. It's either it was fun or it was learning. And it was hard to breach these two concepts together. But as we're finding now and now more and more, there's a lot more resources for it too. This can definitely be done when both sides know enough about the other side that they can talk together, that they can bridge the design and the educational points that need to be gotten across. And that's something we really need to look at doing more in, I'd say everything, but especially medical school. And it's just not being done too much right now. Um, as how, far can, how can as, we do it ourselves? How can we turn learning and, and, you know, maybe even make it a group activity with some of our study mates? Yeah, it's really difficult to do on your own because for most gamification, if you're thinking like video game status, that would take too much programming, too much knowledge in something else. But there are certain online, uh, basically create your own DIY board game style or flashcard game style products out there. And I can't recall the names of them right now. They're in the resources for one of my interviews with Carl Kopp. And it basically allows you to create rules, create like card-based games if you want to go that route, print them out yourself. You make your own rules up and you can play them with friends. So there are a couple of kind of card game-based medical things out there right now. But uh, it's hard to really associate the games that the principle of the game they're trying to implement anyway with an actual educational purpose. So you might want to print something out yourself, 
uh, deck of cards, let's say, as an example, that have flashcard purposes for active learning while still mixing it with, let's say, like a poker game or something along those lines that has a goal that makes you interested in actually playing the game too. Because you want them to be interested in the purpose of the game while still being effective at teaching. So it's not an easy thing to do. I'm not saying that it's going to be successful for everyone to go out and make their own game right now. But if you combine some knowledge and experience out there with some of the experts and get a couple of friends together, you can probably find a, a happy medium of something that's mildly educating and mildly uh, entertaining at the same time. I would think you would need stakes, right? Like mm-hmm. if, if, if you're going to be playing some flashcard-based game, like, I don't know, like a Jeopardy or something. I, mean, I think we've all done things like that when, when we're studying. Maybe we did it electively or maybe it was forced upon us. But I think if there are going to be stakes, then you're going to care more. And maybe, this is just me spitballing, some type of team. Because if one person is just far and above the rest or one person is the opposite, I think there's a ten- there's going to be a tendency if you're just getting slaughtered to just stop paying attention and stop being invested and stop being engaged. And then you're not doing the active learning anymore. So this is my non-PhD level learning uh, <laughs> advice would be stakes and, and some way to make the, even, even things up a little bit. Exactly. You need the stakes to make the game interesting. Otherwise, people lose interest very, very quickly. And that's what a lot of the apps seem to be like. Uh, if you download any gamified app, except for some of the new ones uh, from guests that I've interviewed on the shows, those are pretty interesting. But I would love to, for instance, if someone wants to reach out and do this, let's make a D&D medical version. That could be pretty interesting and high stakes. Wow. Dungeons and Dragons. I'm impressed. <laughs> sure, it could turn the the magic into medicine, right? Yeah. Uh, to a lot of people, it's the same thing anyway. And so. I'm sure there's going to be a, lo- a lot of overlap between people that were interested in Dungeons and Dragons and people that went into medicine. Probably so you've got true. A, a big yeah. audience to start with. <laughs> well, this has been a, a really fascinating discussion, and clearly, we're just scratching the surface with a lot of techniques. And you know, man, I wish I had all this stuff when I was in when I was a pre med. Same. in high school and before mm-hmm. that. So, you know, it's out there. It's out there and it really should be, we should be learning it for ourselves, for our families, for our kids. And, and I appreciate all the work that you're doing to get it out there for it for us. So, so where can people find you? Yeah, all of my material at this point can be found on my website that I started back in the uh, first semester of med school, and that's freemeded.org. So my podcast, book that I've written, future works will probably be on there too. Just scroll through the tabs, but you can find everything on freemeded or search me on social media. So you were, you started this website and you were getting a PhD and you were in medical school all at the same time. Yeah, I was the class rep in, in student government. And part of my job at student government was working on their website. So I learned web development while I was going to my first semester there. So then I just created my own website. <laughs> Very impressive. Chase DeMarco, thank you so much for being on the podcast. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Brad. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.